Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. If you would, please grab your Bibles and turn them to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 32 through 34. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome to River Bible Church. My name is Dustin. If you need a Bible, there is, uh, there's Bibles in the back there. Please grab one of those. That's our gift to you. And as you turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 32, let me review from last Sunday because we wrapped up the lesson on the rich young ruler. Jesus used this man as a teachable moment for the crowd and the 12 disciples because the rich young ruler... He could not do what Jesus asked him to do, and that was to sell everything that he had and go give it to the poor. Now, why was this so hard for the young man? Why would it be hard for you? The bigger question, really, in the theme of last week was what makes it hard for anyone who has wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And we talked about how everyone in this room has wealth, so it applies to every, uh, all of us, right? Uh, we talked about a couple things. It makes it hard because when we have wealth, when we have uh, a steady roof over our heads and clothes on our back and food in the fridge, we become self-sufficient. It's this attitude that, you know what? I got everything I need. I really don't need God. I can provide for myself, God. Thank you very much. And that, that really, it, it, there's an independence from God. Um, there's a self-legislation to that. I'm going to live by my own rules. I'm going to live by my own self-determination, right? I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to kick the doors down instead of living by God's predetermined plan for my life. And really, this independence from God, this self-sufficiency, is all about self-sovereignty. I am my own God, and I'm going to live that way. Some of the key points from last week, according to Jesus, wealth is an obstacle for anyone who wants to enter heaven. We talked about how those who are ruled by money cannot be ruled by God. Why is that? Well, because your heart is attached to your pocketbook. And lastly, we talked about how no Christian is immune. No child of God is exempt from falling in love with money. So how do we? How do we as Christians protect ourselves from the love of money? Well, I want to encourage you always to go to the Word of God and see what God has to say. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 4. If you seek it, he's talking about godly wisdom here. If you seek it like silver and you search for it like a hidden treasure, then, then you're going to understand the fear of the Lord and you'll discover the knowledge of God. Psalm 119.72, instruction from your lips is better for me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Psalm 119.127, since I love your commands more than gold, more than fine gold or the purest of gold, 
I will carefully follow all of your precepts, and I'm going to hate every false way. A precept there is, is God's rule for our daily living, very practical things. So yes, a child of God trusts in God as a father. So every morning, guys, we get to wake up, and we get to, to crawl up on Daddy's lap and say, Abba, Father, what are we going to do today? Papa, what you got store, in store for today? I don't have to worry about today. I don't have to worry about tomorrow. And that is a, a daily reminder for us is to open up the Word of God to read the Word of God. Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, that our delight is in the Lord's instruction and, and we meditate on the Lord's instruction day and night. And I love this verse because this verse really pushes back against this idea of a quiet time. Uh, this, this Americanized version of a quiet time has really ruined the church. This idea of spending 10 or 15 minutes reading a devotional that has one piece of scripture in it and someone else's interpretation has ruined the church. The Word of God says we are to meditate on it day and night. Psalm 119 goes all the way through that. It's a beautiful psalm. Verse 1, how happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. We're not just to to check in with God in the morning and, and do our due diligence. We are to walk with the Lord, listen to the Lord, praise the Lord. Not every hour, not every moment, but with every breath, we are to walk according to the Lord. So all that to say this, there are three things, let me give these to you here, that can protect you from the love of money. Number one, renewing your mind on the word of God every day. We, we talk a lot about tithing our time, to get up in the morning and to tithe your time, to spend time with the Lord, to listen, to read the Word of God. Uh, number two, and this is really important, we, we should probably talk more about this, the, the correct biblical interpretation of what you're reading. M make sure that you're plugged in, that, that you understand what you're reading there. And then number three, a godly community, the local church. Because there's nothing more powerful, there's nothing more beneficial in your life than a healthy local church. And then your commitment to that local church, because the local church is the hope of the world. So all of that is a review from last Sunday. Today, we're going to see Jesus and the Twelve start their final journey towards Jerusalem. Today's scripture passage, it's only three verses long. But don't let the brevity fool you here again. Um, we could easily spend three or four weeks on this passage, but I'm guessing that might wear you out. And so uh, we're not going to do that. Today, we really have, this is a, a very special day. This is a unique passage. Um, we have the unbelievable privilege of watching Jesus fulfill Old Testament prophecy regarding his passion. His passion, all the events from the Lord's Supper to Jesus' crucifixion, um, and we're going to see Jesus predict his future in excruciating detail this morning. His, uh, his public ministry is over. Jesus' focus is now the cross. Uh, Jesus only ministers to one more person in Mark's gospel, a blind man named Bartimaeus. We'll get there. So today, Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection for the third and final time. And this last prediction is different. Why is it different? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. 
Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him, they were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they're going to mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. These are the very words for God, from God for us this morning. Please pray with me. So, Father in heaven, this is an amazing passage this morning. You're going to teach us about the passion. You're going to teach us the cost of what it looks like to save a wretched mankind. You're going to teach us about trust and what it looks like for the disciples to trust you when they did not understand you. And Lord, that's the same message for us today. How do we trust you when we do not understand what you're doing? Lord, teach us the deep things of God this morning, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a seat. Let's dive in here to verse 32. So they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him, followed him were afraid. Taking the, taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. So after the false start here in verse 17 with the, the interruption of the rich young ruler, Jesus and the twelve, they, they finally start walking towards Jerusalem and walking to Jerusalem is, is always referred to as going up because the city is located on a high point in Israel. Mark says that Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now, this is the first time that we see this in Mark's gospel. And it's important to note that Jesus is leading the way. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he's not lingering. He's not procrastinating. He's moving quickly. He's moving steadily. And it's almost like Jesus is pulling his disciples with him. Now, pause for one second. If you knew that you were walking to your death, would you be moving this rapidly? No. No. We'd be dragging our feet. But Jesus, he's not lagging behind. He's, he's not lagging like a prisoner walking towards the executioner here. He's not kicking and screaming. No, he's leading the way. Amazing. And he's leading the way because Jesus is entirely obedient to the Father until his last breath. And we'll see that coming up as well. Verse 32 says, The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. So what's going on here? Why are the disciples astonished? Why are they astounded? The sense here is that they are affected, they are impacted with wonder. Well, we, we've seen Jesus astonish the 12 many, many times throughout Mark's gospel so far. Uh, he astonished lots of people just by Jesus' teaching. Jesus astonished people by his miracles. Jesus astonished more people by raising the dead. Uh, Jesus 
astonish the twelve by calming the storm. But here in verse 32, we're not really sure why the twelve are astonished. So let's take an educated guess. Could it be the realization that Yahweh, the one true living God, who is holy, 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 is standing with them? I mean, maybe they're finally aware that the person who spoke the world into existence is leading the way. The, the one who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. The one who, who told Noah to build an ark. The one who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The one who spoke from a burning bush. The one who led the Israelites out of slavery. The one who told Job to man up. Hey, you better answer my questions. The one who saved Daniel from the fiery furnace. The one who saved Jonah from the belly of a whale. And we could go on and on and on, right? But it's this man who's standing with them. How can they not be astonished? So put yourselves in the disciples' shoes here. You've never seen Jesus walk like this before. You've never seen Jesus so preoccupied either. There is a determination in Jesus' countenance here. Jesus is silent, and for the most part, the whole crowd is quiet. There's a tension in the air. It's, it's, almost like, it's almost like you can taste the wickedness that's about ready to happen. And when you look at Jesus, there's an uncanny hardness that you've never seen before. The Word of God says in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, that the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. So the disciples, they can't get over this. They're, they're not sure how to respond. And, and we see the same thing here with the, with the crowd too. So in verse 32, the disciples were astonished, but those who followed him, they were afraid. So this is referring to the larger group that's also following Jesus. Passover is near. Millions of people are making the journey towards Jerusalem. So could it be that they're afraid because they sense that something epic is about to happen? Why is the crowd afraid? There, there's lots of reasons. Let me give you three. They knew that the Sanhedrin wanted to kill Jesus. So at this point, being in close proximity to Jesus, well, that may cost you something. Number two, is it time that Jesus is finally going to declare war on the Romans? Because that's what the Jews believed the Messiah was going to do. Is that what Jesus is thinking about right now? And number three, is it just the, the human fear, the normal fear of persecution and not knowing what's going on, not being in control? Well, let's see what Jesus says here to relieve their fears. In verse 32, taking the 12 aside again. So this is the third time that Jesus has done this. And he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Jesus says, all right, guys, listen up. We're all going to Jerusalem. Circle that we in your Bible, we. This is a we thing. We're going up to Jerusalem. And he says, the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And then they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. So Jesus calls himself the son of man. 
This is an Old Testament title that comes from the book of Daniel. Let's see why this is important. God gave Daniel a prophetic dream regarding Jesus. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel says this, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days, that's God the Father. And he was escorted before him. So God the Father, is a, he is escorting God the Son. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It's not going to pass away. And this kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So Jesus calls himself the Son of Man many, many times in the Gospels. It's his favorite title for himself. And the reason that he did this was to repeatedly tell the disciples that he is God in human form. That he is the one that Daniel is referring to. And that vision has become a reality. The Son of Man is the same person that's standing before the twelve. This son of man in Daniel is the Jesus standing before the 12, almighty God wrapped up in in flesh and bone. So all of that sets the stage here. Back to verse 33. Jesus says, all right, guys, look, we're going to Jerusalem. And the son of man, picture this now, the son of man, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God himself will be handed over to the chief priest and to the scribes. So this concept of being handed over or delivered up, your translation may say, it's used in a legal sense. So in other words, Jesus is being handed over into the hands of men for the sole purpose of judgment and punishment for our sins. From Scripture, we see how elders and and the chief priests and the scribes, how they handed Jesus over. We see through the Gospels how Judas and Pilate They were guilty of handing Jesus over. So mankind most definitely is guilty of murdering Jesus, the Messiah, their Messiah, right? Our Savior. So look at this. Peter preaches at at Pentecost right after the Holy Spirit arrives. The disciples, they are speaking in tongues in the book of Acts, and they are preaching the mighty works of Almighty God in various languages. And then Peter says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He says, though Jesus was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you used the lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. So don't miss this. Jesus was not only was handed over by his own people, which are the Jews. Jesus was not only betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas, Jesus was not only murdered by the hands of the Gentiles, but Scripture says that all of this was predetermined by God the Father. God the Father, he is the one who set this plan in motion, and humans were more than willing to carry it out. So this terminology of being handed over or betrayed in verse 33, it's, it's, it's called a divine passive. So theologically, it, it means that they're talking about God without using God's name. Um, in other words here, Jesus' betrayal 
was God the Father's predetermined plan from the very beginning. So write down Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. From the very beginning, right after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God the Father, he took the initiative in providing for man's salvation after Adam and Eve sinned, and the only way to undo what Adam and Eve did was for God himself to be murdered by his own creation. And God the Son willingly and lovingly submitted to God the Father's plan to rescue all of mankind. Dang. Right? Y'all with me? Dang. Verse 34. And they will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. And they will kill him. And he will rise after three days. Jesus is so specific here as to what's getting ready to happen. This sounds like a play-by-play. Many seminaries, many Bible scholars, many churches, many pastors believe that there is no way that Jesus knows all of these future things with such great detail. These folks believe that Mark is a liar, that somehow he committed fraud in writing the gospel. Just so you all know, we here at River Bible Church, we, we teach that God's word is infallible. It's flawless. Another sermon for another day. Now, if Jesus didn't predict his death in this passage, we've got some problems. Because that makes Jesus a liar. And if Jesus is a liar, well, then he's not God. Because Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says that God cannot lie. And if Jesus is not God, then he can't be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, which means that all of us are going to a very real place called hell. So we've got some tragic consequences if if this is not true. So let's get really practical here. How does Jesus know all of these things? You say, well, I believe that Jesus is God, Dustin. Yeah, so he, he knows, absolutely. That's biblical truth. But scripture also tells us this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, that he emptied himself, Jesus, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death on a cross. So somehow, someway, and this is a mystery, Jesus emptied himself And he depended on God the Father for his omniscience, for his foreknowledge. Now, there are are times, several times to where we, we see Jesus knowing what's getting ready to happen, right? Jesus knew the Pharisees' thoughts several times throughout Scripture. Jesus knows where the donkey is. He knows where the colt is for Palm Sunday. He told the disciples to go get the colt. He told the disciples exactly what to say when people... When the owners of the cult said, hey, what are you doing? So Jesus knows these things. But somehow, some way, he emptied himself of his full and total omniscience as the Son of Man. Which means, guys, that he had to trust God as his Father. Just like we do. So how else would a perfect, obedient son... No, with such certainty that he would suffer with such great detail. Well, Jesus knows his Old Testament. And he didn't, know, he didn't just know the Old Testament. He is the subject of all the Old Testament books. 
So let's slow down here. Let's take a close look at what Jesus says in verse 33. The Son of Man is going to be handed over to the chief priest and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, if the disciples were not afraid before, imagine how terrified they are right now at this moment. Because Jesus just told them that the entire religious system that they grew up with, they're going to judge Jesus as guilty. They're going to sentence the Son of Man as guilty. Why? For being God. And if that's not bad enough, this religious system will then deliver Jesus over to the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles, anyone who is not a Jew is a Gentile, but the Gentiles here are the Romans. And from the disciples' perspective, there's nothing more terrifying than being handed over to the Romans. Why? Because it's the Romans who have not only the power to kill, but to crucify. So verse 34, Jesus says they're going to mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And then he's going to rise after three days. So verse 34 is where Jesus gets grossly specific. So once again, how does Jesus know all these things? Well, Jesus is, he is perfectly obedient to the Old Testament. And he knows how to interpret the Old Testament, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. Because everything that Jesus was telling the twelve, he was about to fulfill prophecy. I mean, every aspect of Jesus' death was prophesied seven centuries before he was even born. Now, the twelve were familiar with the Old Testament because it was taught in the synagogue all of their lives. The problem, though, is that it was misinterpreted. The Pharisees and the scribes, they lacked a true understanding of the Scriptures. And we know this because Jesus continually asked the scribes and the Pharisees, have you guys not read? Have you not read this? Like, you you claim to be experts in the law. Have you not read this? And if you have read it, why are you misinterpreting it incorrectly? Why are you teaching something that you have no clue what's going on? Dear friends, that's dangerous, very dangerous. So let me show you some examples here using the Old Testament text that the scribes and the Pharisees were supposed to be experts in. Verse 34, they will mock him. Does the Old Testament anywhere say that they will mock the Son of Man? Psalm 22, verse 7, everyone who sees me, that's Jesus, mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. It was fulfilled in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew 27, 29. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They placed a a staff in his right hand. They knelt down before him, and they mocked him. Mark 15, 20. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. Luke 23, 11. Then Herod, with his soldiers, they treated him with contempt, and they mocked him. They dressed him in bright clothing, and they sent him back to Pilate. So Jesus is one for one. Back to verse 34, they will mock him, and then they will spit on him. Has anybody ever spit on you? These people spit on God. God. 
Isaiah 56, Jesus says, I I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. Was it fulfilled? Matthew 27, 30, they spat on him, they took his staff, and they kept hitting him on the head. Mark 14, 65, some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, prophesy. Jesus is two for two. Back to Mark verse 34 here. They will mock him, they will spit on him, and they will flog him. Flogging, it's beating someone on the back with a, repeatedly with a whip. Scripture also calls this scourging. We read about this in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. Jesus says, I gave my back to those who beat me. Matthew 27, 26, it was fulfilled. Release Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. Luke 23, 22, a third time Pilate said to them, Why? What has this man done wrong? I have found no grounds for the death penalty. So you know what? Okay, I'll just have him whipped, and then I'm going to release him. He's he's an innocent man, but I'm still going to punish him for some odd reason. And then John chapter 19, verse 1, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Jesus is three for three. Back to verse 34, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. The psalmist writes, chapter 22, verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me, a gang of evildoers has closed in on me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, But he was pierced because of our rebellion, and he was crushed because of our iniquities. The amazing thing about these verses is that they were written before crucifixion even existed. And it was fulfilled. Mark chapter 15, verse 27. They crucified two criminals with Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. Luke 23, 33. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Matthew 27, 35, after crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Did you know that even that detail was prophesied in the Old Testament? That soldiers would gamble for Jesus' clothes? Psalm 22, 18, They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. Four for four, back to verse 34. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, and and he will rise after three days. So Jesus is talking about the resurrection here. Was the resurrection, is that in the Old Testament? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11. After his anguish, he will see light, and he will be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. We see that Jesus' resurrection fulfilled here in Matthew 28, 6. He's not here. The angel says he's not here. He's risen, just like he said. Mark 16, 6. Don't be alarmed, the angel told them. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. 
He was dead. He was buried right here, but he's not here anymore. He's risen. He's not here. See? You can see right there where they put him. They put his body, but he's not here. Luke 24, 6, he's not here. He has risen. So the Old Testament, it's called the Old Covenant, the Old Promise, has predicted so many other details about Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, the, the Old Testament predicts Jesus' betrayal by Judas, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The Old Testament predicts the desertion by his disciples, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. It predicts that none of his bones would be broken, that he'd be given vinegar to drink, that his side would be pierced, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, that he would walk out of his own grave, and that he would sit at the, at the Father's right hand. All of these things and more were predicted in the Old Testament, and they are fulfilled in Jesus. So what's all this mean for you today? We look back at verse 33, right? And, and Jesus says, we are going to Jerusalem, guys, all of us. Can't you just see Peter going, uh, I don't want to go. Are you sure? I'm not sure I want to go. Now, as many of you guys know, there are times in your life where, where you won't understand God either. The, the 12 did not understand what Jesus was doing. There are times where you will not understand why you're going through a financial crisis. There are times in your life where you're just going to have relational struggle after relational struggle day in, day out. Your neighbors, your kids, your grandkids, your marriage. When is this going to let up, God? Children and grandchildren, they fall off the rails. It seems like they never are ever going to come back. There are times in your life where your friends and even your closest friends will betray you. There are times in your life where sickness and death and dying are all around you. And guys, it's in these moments. It's in that moment right there where you can't, you can't even fathom what's going on to where Jesus is leading the way. And it's, a, it's, it's at that moment you've got a choice to keep walking with him. You can keep following him or you can stop. You've got the choice, right? You have the choice to trust God even though you don't understand God. And because you don't understand what he's doing, are you at a moment right now in your life to where you are thinking about stopping? Are you angry at God? for what he's doing, for the, for the season in life that you're in right now? Now, many of us go, no, I'm not angry at God. We'd never say that, not out loud. I'm just a little irritated with God. That's called anger. Are you trying to control the situation? You're trying to, trying to grab the steering wheel away from Jesus? Maybe you've... You've been in your season for so long that you're fighting depression. Are you depressed? You're trying to, trying to figure this thing out and you're not sure why you should even get out of bed in the morning? Are you bitter? You bitter at life? Have you lost your joy? 
Have you lost your joy because God is judging our country right now and judging the world? Guys, when you start to experience all of these emotions and you're going through some tough seasons in life, that, that's okay. But I do want to encourage you to do one thing, and that is to open up the Word of God. Because the Word of God will calm your emotions, and He will give you a divine peace. Because experiencing God more times than not, it's not this overly emotional event. I mean, you can't live on the mountaintop. Because experiencing God day by day is based on a normal, healthy relationship with a person, and his name is Jesus. It's not based on this fake, fabricated, emotional experience. I'm going to come to church and get myself all amped up, and I'm going to make myself feel good. No, it's based on a real, healthy relationship with the one true living God. And the, and the primary basis of, of that relationship, of your relationship, is reading the Word of God by the Spirit of God from cover to cover over and over. And the question is, will you? And not only will you, but will you in this tough season? So let me leave you with this one key point today. Is that, you know, you look at the 12 as Jesus was clearly telling them, what they thought was bad news. And it was bad news, but ultimately it was the good news, right? Because Romans 8.28 is still in the Bible. Y'all with me? Romans 8.28 is still in the Bible. All things. That's right. All things. So when you are clueless where the Lord is leading you, and you're wiped out, and you're tired, and and you just want to give up, you open up the Word of God. Because the 12, they, they didn't want to go to Jerusalem, right? They, they didn't, the 12 clearly didn't trust Jesus perfectly, but they did trust Him increasingly. And the same is, is for us, right? You don't have to trust God perfectly, but you can trust Him increasingly. You can trust Him more than you did yesterday. Y'all with me on that? Father in heaven, you are so good to us. Thank you for making a way to save our wretched souls. Heavenly Father, you, you put this plan into existence. Lord Jesus, you carried out the plan. And Father, we are here to worship your Son to thank you for making a way that, Jesus, you are the way. You're the truth and the life. For those of us who are children of God, for those of us who are disciples, Lord, may we share this amazing truth with others, not only today, but throughout this week. May we see who you've put around us, those who are hurting, those who have questions, and maybe, just maybe, you can use us in spite of ourselves to share the good news called the gospel right here in the Verde Valley. Thank you, Lord. This life is, is about finishing life well. And to finish life well, Lord, we must know your word, just like Jesus knew the Old Testament. 
Thank you for showing us this is not about feeling. This is about knowing. Knowing your promises. Knowing your covenants. And knowing you, Lord Jesus. So we thank you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen.